All right, thanks, Greg. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Sunday School. Getting started. Yeah, I know you need some extra effort this morning because of daylight savings time, but I'm looking forward to our lesson today. We're continuing our study of the seven seas of history, and in particular, the third event, the third sea, and that is the flood catastrophe. Now, last week, we looked at the, the world situation before the flood, and we saw why God sent the flood. It was due to the wickedness of man on the earth that was so great and ever increasing. All of it offending God's perfect character, not just his holiness, but also his goodness. But we also saw why God spared Noah. God spared Noah because Noah was righteous. And from where did Noah's righteousness come? Not from his works. We looked at this last week. It didn't come from keeping God's commands. It came the same way that righteousness comes for us, and that is by faith. It was by faith in God and in God's promised salvation that Noah was righteous. His works were a result of faith. That's why he was obedient to all God's commands. And from where did Noah's faith come from? Well, we talked about, or from where did his faith come? We talked about that last week too. And that is, it was a gift of God. God chose to show favor to Noah, granted him faith, because he saved, he was saved just as we are saved. And that is by grace through faith. Now let's move on to today's material. Because the flood is such an important and instructive event in our history, we're focusing on different aspects of the flood over the next several lessons. And today's lesson is going to be a unique look at the flood. Here's a look at what we're doing today. We're going to read through the entire flood account in one sitting from Genesis 6 to Genesis 9. Now, obviously, that's a lot of text and a lot of information. Why are we doing that? What are we looking to accomplish? Well, basically, we're looking to answer two main questions today. Uh, last week, we focused on two questions, and this week, we're focusing on two questions. The questions for today are, what is, first, the question is, what is the timeline for the progression of the flood events? Do we get a discernible timeline from the text? And then, Second question, what exactly was destroyed in the flood? Well, connected with that, what was saved? What was spared? Answering these questions will help us get a better grip on whether what we read in God's word ought to be taken as myth, hyperbole, or sobering historical narrative. Depending on how we see the timing of the text laid out and the details about what was destroyed and what was spared, it's going to affect how we understand this passage as a whole. And that will be useful not only in an apologetic sense, but also for taking in the message of this passage. Now we're going to explore at the final part of our class today a number of application questions that relate to what does this mean for us? How does it how should it impact our lives? What are some ways? And I've drawn actually many of these application questions from the Answers in Genesis workbooks that go along with this course. So if you have those workbooks, you'll notice that many of the questions are similar to what we're going to be talking about later. Well, let's ask God's blessing now for this time of instruction. Pray with me. Our great God, we thank you. We thank you for today. We thank you that you've given us your word and you've given us this record. This is a very important part of our history, Lord, important part of the world, um, things that happen in the world for us to know. God, I pray that you would bless this time, that we would understand your word and that we would see the significance of it for our lives today. God, I pray that we would come to revere you, have a holy fear based on what we what we read and hear today. And God, I pray that that would ultimately result in our joy as we know you more, as we submit to you, and as we grow in love for you. I pray that you would be so pleased to accomplish that in today's lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we start by simply hearing the entire flood account. So please, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to read Genesis 6, starting from verse 1, 
going to Genesis 9, verse 19. As I said, as we read, I want you to be paying attention to two ideas. So read through, think about the timing of the flood and the scope of the flood destruction. You might think of jotting some notes down on a piece of paper, if you have that handy or if you have a writing implement. But if you don't, don't worry, that's okay. Just make mental notes as we go through. And I'll read the text in such a way where I emphasize where significant details appear in the text. Now, reading through this entire passage is going to take about 15 minutes or so, so stay focused, but I think it'll be really beneficial for us to hear the whole account at once. So, Genesis 6-1 down to verse 19 of chapter 9. Let's hear God's proclamation of the flood event. Now, it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yahweh was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I... Even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is, in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Then Yahweh said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female. Now the animals that are not clean, <clears throat> two, a male and his female. Also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And I will blot out from the face of the land, every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that Yahweh commanded him, had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. 
Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that, were not, that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that same day, or on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him. And Yahweh closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those who were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Now chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah, and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days <clears throat> and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, 
you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you i give all to you as i gave the green plant only you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood surely i will require your life blood from every beast i will require it and from every man from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And that's where we'll stop. It's good to read a long section of scripture together, to read an entire account, like, uh, like we have just done. We won't be doing that again in the upcoming lessons, but I hope that was edifying to you. But let's see if we can go back to those two questions that we framed in the beginning. What about the timing? Did you notice time indicators in the text? You should have. From these, we can build a specific timeline of the flood. And we're going to do that now. I'll put most, irrelevant, most relevant time details on the screen for you. But do note, first of all, a time detail that appears in Genesis 6-3. There first appears a warning of the coming judgment from God when he says, man's days will be 120 years. Now, some take this to be some kind of reference to man's new lifespan, that as a 
results of judgment, God says, now man's not going to live so long. I'm going to bring his age down to 120 years. But I don't think this is the best interpretation because if we just go to the Genesis 11 genealogy, we'll see that post-flood, many people do live way more than 120 years. But as we keep going through time, we also learn that many people live way less than 120 years. By the time we reach Moses' day, Moses is able to say this in his psalm, Psalm 90:10, a psalm written by Moses. Moses says, Psalm 90, verse 10, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone that we fly away. So 120 years doesn't fit very well as a description of man's new lifespan. I believe, along with answers in Genesis and, and others, the best way to understand this statement is that it is a final display of God's patience before the flood judgment. Even with the unthinkable co-mingling of the sons of God and the daughters of man, which is an interpretation issue we can't unpack fully today. But as I mentioned before, I do believe this refers to the some kind of demonic possession and co-mingling of fallen angels with human women. But even after this heinous breach of the appropriate spheres of the spiritual and the human, God does not send immediate judgment. He says, yet 120 years. So God's patience was not at an end, but it was the beginning of the end of God's patience. The flood is coming. And likely this statement from God, since it's recorded for us in the scriptures, was given by God to Noah. And as a reaction to that statement, and with what continues in the text, this is probably when Noah began building the ark. Because right after God says this, he gives the instructions to Noah about the flood and tells him to build an ark, which means that Noah is probably building the ark for about 100 years. Building the ark, acting as a preacher of righteousness, and thereby condemning the world, as Hebrew says. He was building this lifeboat for a long time because God yet was patient. And that's the first time detail I want to point out to you. But the flood itself, we learn, begins at a very specific time. Day zero, the beginning of the flood, according to Genesis 7, verse 11, is Noah's 600th year of life on the second month, on the 17th day of the month. It's on this very day that the flood begins. It begins with rain from the sky and the opening of all the fountains of the deep. So don't forget this when it comes to the flood. It wasn't simply rain from above. It was also water from below. On this first day, this what we're going to call day zero for the, for the terms of adding things up, Noah and his family and the animals entered or finished entering the ark, and God shut the door of the ark behind them. This is where the flood began. Outside note, isn't that one of the most sobering statements in the Bible? That God shut the door. The door of salvation was previously open and the saved entered into it. But the day came when the door needed to be shut. And it wasn't Noah who shut it. It was God. So the flood begins on this first day. Now, according to Genesis Genesis 7, 17, it then rains on the earth for 40 days. God says it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. But then notice in Genesis 7, 24, it says that the waters continue to rise for 150 days. So it wasn't raining the whole time. The waters continue to rise even after the rain stopped. Then notice, then notice Genesis 8, verse 3. Genesis 8, 3 says at the end of 150 days, what happens? The waters begin to recede. And in the very next verse, Genesis 8, 4, we hear that on the 17th day of the seventh month, or what would be 150 days since the flood began, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And we should understand that phrase, mountains of Ararat, to mean the mountain range, not this particular mountain. 
not the one necessarily that we call Ararat today, but the mountains of Ararat. So on the 150th day, then, we have two events taking place. The waters begin to recede, and the ark comes to rest on Ararat, which, by the way, suggests that the topography of the world had changed as a result of the flood. For the ark to be able to rest on the mountain, even when all the mountains were previously covered, it's probably because some mountains were created or formed through the flood that didn't exist before or didn't exist the way that they would after the flood. So the waters begin to decrease and they continue to decrease. And Genesis 8, 5 says on the first day of the 10th month, or what would be 74 days later, day 224 since the start, the mountains become visible. Then Genesis 8, verses 6 to 7, you hear that 40 days go by. And then Noah opens the window of the ark and sends out the raven and the dove. This would be day 264. And then we have a number of details that follow a little interlude about the sending out of the dove and it's coming back. And this is indicating the gradual drying process of the earth, the gradual lessening of water of the earth. Then in Genesis 8.13, we hear that in the 601st year of Noah, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the water was dried from the earth. Now, this is 90 days after our, our last specific date in Genesis 8-5, when the mountains became visible, or what would be G day 314 since the start of the flood. By day 314, the surface of the earth is dry, and Noah opens the covering, or probably the door, of the ark, but Noah doesn't leave the ark. It's only in Genesis 8-14, on the second, in the second month of the 601st year, on the 27th day of the month, then Moses says, our writer, Moses says the earth was dry. And then God tells Noah to leave the ark with all his family and all the animals. So there appears to be a difference there. The surface of the earth was dry previously, but the whole earth is dry by day 371. And that would, that would be 57 days later since he noted that the surface of the earth was dry. And that's the end of the flood. So just looking at this all together, Noah and the animals of the ark experienced the flood for 371 days, more than an entire year. That's how long the flood lasted. Now consider the implications of this. 371 days of the flood. This must have been a great cataclysm, right? I mean, we sometimes think of the ark as being, you know, 40 days, 40 nights. That's the thing that the children's books have all emphasized to us, right? 40 days and 40 nights. But the Bible says it was more than that, as we've just seen. No, it was 371 days. A flood lasting more than a year. This was a long-lasting, globe-covering flood. And it would have to be, right? It took time to cover the earth. It took time to recede from the earth, and it took time for the earth to dry. This was indeed a great flood. But during all this time, God preserved those who were on the ark. By the way, are you appreciating how meticulous Moses is with the time details of this account? I mean, look, we've got years, months, and specific days all noted. Not just, you know, a certain number of days went by, but the actual day of the year. This is why I said before, as you go through Genesis and as you go through the Torah, it's remarkable how the Spirit of God was so concerned about time. God wanted the people of Israel to understand their times and the time of what came before. Now, all of this does show us something very important. These details that we see in the text and really throughout Genesis and the Torah they all indicate what kind of genre we are dealing with. What is the genre of Genesis 6 to 9? Just based off of this. It would have to be historical narrative. This is all the marks of historical narrative. You have a clear sequence of events. You have specific time details in the text. And you even have that little statement in the middle, Genesis 6, this is the record of the generations of Noah. This is historical narrative. This is written as history. 
And we'll come back to the idea a little bit later. Now, what perished in the flood? We've seen the timeline of events in the flood, but as we read through, did you notice any descriptions that might help us answer the question of what perished and what survived? Well, yeah. I mean, you're practically probably saying, uh, duh, Dave. It's all over the text. It's almost obnoxiously all over the text. Now, I'm not accusing the scripture of being obnoxious. I'm just saying that maybe that's the way we would understand it because it's so repetitive. And I'll just list a number of these references for you. Genesis 6-5 says, God speaking, I will blot out man from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. Genesis 6-13, the end of all flesh has come upon, come before me. Genesis 6-17, God says he's bringing the flood to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life from under heaven. And in the same verse, he says, everything that is on the earth shall perish. In the next two verses, Genesis 6, 18 and 19, only Noah and his family and the pairs of each animal on the ark were preserved. They were to be accepted. And then Genesis 7, 5, God says again, I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing I have made. Genesis 7, 21, all flesh that moves perished, including the birds, the cattle, the beasts, the swarming things, and all mankind. 7.22, all that was on dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. 7.23, God blotted out every living thing upon the face of the land, including man, animals, and creeping things, and the birds of the sky. Only Noah was left, together with those who were with him in the ark. And then a few more. 9, chapter 9, verse 11, all flesh shall never be cut off again by the water of the flood, God promises. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. 9 verse 15, never again shall water destroy all flesh. And then 9.19, it says from Noah's sons, the whole earth was populated. I think the Spirit of God has made this pretty clear, hasn't it? Who and what survived the flood? Only Noah, his family, and the animals he took with him on the ark. And of course the sea creatures. So then what perished in the flood? Everything else. Everything and everyone else. If you are not a sea creature and if you are not on the ark, and you died. All men, women, and children on the earth, besides Noah and his family, were killed by the flood. And this is exactly what the New Testament says. 1 Peter 3.20 Peter says eight persons survived the flood by getting on the ark. Just eight. In 1 Peter 2.5, earlier in Peter's letter, he says, God did not spare the ancient world, but he judged all except the eight people who were on the ark. And the writer of Hebrews says similarly, Hebrews 11.7, Noah condemned the world and built an ark that only saved his household. Now, there are some implications from that, too. We'll talk more about this next week. But hopefully you're already appreciating one fact. If you say that the flood was local, that it just affected one particular region of the earth, or that other animals or people besides Noah and what was with him survived this event, you do not get those ideas from the biblical text. The Bible does not lead you at all in that direction. Rather, the emphasis of Moses as he writes his account is that everything outside the ark died. Again and again, he emphasizes that fact. That helps us realize what kind of flood we're dealing with. Now, I don't want us to just be apologetic about this. That is, just be thinking about defending the, the fact of the flood, the nature of the flood, and then repeating with no emotion, yes, every person that existed on the earth at that time perished in the flood. That's true. Do you appreciate the gravity of that fact? What that means? I mean, think about it. Picture it. Fathers. Husbands. Sons, wives, mothers, grandmothers, infants, teenagers, aspiring artists, 
musicians, metal workers, businessmen, criminals, leaders, soldiers, entertainers, teachers, people of every kind of vocation and hobby, people made in the image of God, all who had hopes and fears, dreams, lives, and livelihoods, people who maybe technologically were different than us, but who otherwise were pretty much the same, just like you and I, they all suddenly perished in the flood. Why? Because they made themselves enemies of God and they refused to repent of their sin. They loved sin, they loved themselves, and they paid no regard to their creator. Were such people, were they ready for the flood? Of course they weren't. They needed more time. They needed more time to get ready, more time to repent. But there was no more time. The day of judgment had come. Those who had already gotten into God's lifeboat were saved. But for everyone else, it was too late. Are we that different from them? As we said last week, there is another judgment day coming. Not by water, but by the coming of the Son of Man and by fire. Are you ready for that day? Are the people you know, the people you love, people you see, think about, are they ready for that day? Have they embraced God's only way of salvation? And have you? Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 37. Matthew 24, 37, Jesus is describing his future return to judge the world. And this is what he says. 20, Matthew 24, verse 37 to 39. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Let's finish our time today by looking at a few more application questions. They have something to do with what we've just said, but also some different directions. I have four questions here. First, how would you use the text of this passage that we've looked at today to respond to someone who thinks this account represents a myth, an allegory, or an exaggeration? What would you say? Hopefully you see that just going to the text itself dispels such notions. You can, and you should, in such a situation, show the person that the passage itself is way too historically detailed for this to be a myth, for this to just be an allegory or an exaggeration. Moses did not present this as a myth. Look at all the time details in the text. Look at the specificity of the dates in the text. Look at the specificity in the construction of the ark. He says, make it this many cubits and put this many decks in it and put a window here. This is specific. This doesn't fit with the idea of, oh, you know, it's just a myth. Yeah, Israelites knew it was a myth. Oh, you know, it's all figurative. You know, it's just like creation. It's all figurative. It can't be. That doesn't fit with the text itself. And you know, many people who dismiss the flood as a myth or something that was purposefully hyperbolic or symbolic, they've never actually paid attention to what's in the account. 
This is why when people disregard scripture or have objections about scripture, one of the best things to do, and this is just a general principle, one of the best things to do is take them to the scripture. Say, oh, that's an interesting idea. Have you, have you read the passage? You know, it's an interesting thought you have about that, but can I show you what it says? This is true even when people claim that there are contradictions in the Bible. Oh, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions. You can't really believe the Bible. Oh, really? Well, what are some of those contradictions? A lot of times they're not even able to answer that question. But when they are, they say, oh, you know, uh, it says he would rise three days from the dead, or he would, he would be a certain amount of time, three days and three nights in the grave, but he was only there about a day and a half. So look, the text contradicts itself. Say, oh, well, let's actually look at those statements or some other contradiction they bring up. Oh, oh, why don't we actually look at the text? Because when you do that, it very easily unfolds that there is no real contradiction in the text. You take people to the text, you can show them, look, actually, no, it does fit together. And so it is with the flood. This has to be history. It is presented as history. We can't take it another way. A second question. What can we learn about God's character by comparing salvation of the ark and salvation in Christ? This is an interesting question. You may have heard a number of different people talk about how Christ is our ark. And the ark is a useful metaphor for the gospel. Now, I do advise caution when it comes to making the ark or even Noah, types of Jesus, say, oh, no, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus, or the, the, the ark is a type of Jesus. If we say that, we might start over-interpreting the details of Genesis to force them to reveal to us things about Christ or the gospel. Say, oh, you know, this is really talking about Jesus, and so this detail is important, this detail is important. And we might twist the text or overlook other details. So I advise caution when it comes to seeing and identifying types. But that being said, there are consistent principles between the ark and Jesus regarding God's character and regarding God's salvation. What are some of those parallels or those principles? Yes, yeah, Steve. Yeah, yeah, those are both good points. We see God's grace, God's ability and desire to rescue, which is consistent in the, the flood account and the gospel, but also that there will be a time of reckoning, just as you said. God is holy and must judge sin. What else? What else is a parallel? Security and safety. Yeah, oh, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, great explanation. God preserved all of those who were in the ark perfectly. It's not like a bunch of people got in the ark and then somebody fell overboard and it's like, oh, sorry, we couldn't save that person. And that's just like what Jesus says when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to salvation in him. All that the Father gives to me will come to me and I'll by no means cast them out. And all that the Father gives to me, I will not lose one of them. There is security in God's salvation. It is sure. And he does preserve his people perfectly. And we see that in the ark. And we see that in Christ. That's good. Something else. Uh, yes. Yeah, Agatha. Okay. Yeah. I think that's another great point, another great parallel. For someone to get on the ark, they had to believe the Lord, which means they had to repent of their sin. They had to give up the, the lifestyle that characterized the rest of the world and the heart that loved sin. And that was part of Noah's message as a preacher of righteousness. And it's the same in the gospel. <laughs> Salvation is available to you in Christ just as it was available in the ark. 
but you must similarly actually believe God. And you must similarly turn turn away from your old life of sin. Turn a, um, turn aside the rule of your heart from yourself to God. So yeah, that is another consistent principle. I'll mention a few others. And we've mentioned God is holy and must judge sin. God is gracious and he provides a way of salvation. But notice also that God's way of salvation is exclusive. There is no other way other than the one way given by God. It was true in the flood. We noticed no one was saved outside of those in the ark. I'm sure people tried to save themselves. People tried to swim. People tried to grab on to debris. Or maybe there were some other boats at the time. But they couldn't handle the judgment. They couldn't handle the waters from above and the waters from below. You know, it was interesting, Emma and I were talking the other day. And if you've ever been in a day of heavy rain, it's kind of crazy. Just one day. And it's like, ah, things are flooded and like we can't even handle all this water. But this was 40 days of heavy rain and water from below and probably tectonic and seismic and volcanic activity. I'm sorry. I don't care if you're a good swimmer or if you've got a nice boat. You're not going to be able to get through that. There's only one way, and it's the way that God provided. So it is in Christ. What does Jesus say about himself? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you know, it's become more popular to say, oh, you know, as long as you're sincere, God will understand. It's, it's kind of like you believe in the same God. It's not what the scriptures say. The apostles themselves say in the book of Acts, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. Of course, that's not a name that we simply invoke. You have to know the person of Jesus Christ, but he's making the point. There is only one way of salvation. This is a consistent principle between the flood account and the gospel. And this goes along with Steve's point. Another facet that sticks out to me is the time to embrace God's salvation eventually comes to an end. Eventually, God closed the door of the ark. Just as God will, in a sense, close the door for each one of us. God will call each of us to an account. If we've not yet come to know God, we will be like that woman that Jesus speaks about in Revelation the woman Jezebel, the prophetess, false teacher, God says, I gave her time to repent. She wasn't willing. So now I'm going to throw her into a bed of sickness. I'm going to judge her. And God will do that for each one of us. He will call us to an account, either when we die or when he comes. But he will come to us and say, explain yourself. Tell me about what you did in your life. Tell me about your response to me. Why did you not embrace my salvation? Why did you repudiate me? Why did you love yourself? Why did you not give up your sins? Explain yourself. And of course, no one will be able to offer defense in that day. And so he will be justly condemned. So we see another consistent parallel between the flood and the judgment to come. The time of salvation eventually came to an end. The time to embrace God's salvation. Of course, that, that has a direct application to us, which is embrace salvation now while you can. Now is the day of salvation, as the New Testament writers emphasize. Now is the day that God's calling you. Obey the Lord's call. And this goes into our, our next question. Third question here, how should we approach God knowing that he is holy and will judge mankind for his sinfulness, for its sinfulness? Now, the answer to this really responds to where you are before God. If you belong to God and you're walking with God, you're obedient to God, not perfectly, but your direction is to follow God. If you have a true faith before the Lord, then hearing about this Hearing about God's holiness and what he did in the flood, it ought to provoke in us a reverence and an awe of God, a holy fear of God, but also joy. Why joy? 
Because this powerful, this holy God, this wrathful God is not our enemy anymore. He's our father. He's our king. He's our husband. The power that he could have used to execute judgment on us, he instead uses to save us, to uphold us, to sanctify us, and to provide us with a reward with him in heaven. God only does good for us now. God always does good, but sometimes if we're not in God, then then we won't experience necessarily that good. But for us who do know the Lord, who are in Christ, even the flood points to our joy because we say, this God is our God. He's not against us. He's for us. But if you don't belong to God, if you're not in Christ, or if you claim to be in Christ and you're living in sin, that is, you're, you know there's something in your life that you ought to repent of, but you're excusing it, ignoring it, don't want to deal with it, just want to enjoy your sin, then this account of the flood and this unveiling of God's holiness and his judgment, it ought to fill you with fear and trembling. It ought to humble you before God, because what does Hebrews call him? Our God is a consuming fire. Technically, we don't see fire in the flood account. We see water, but it's the same idea. This is a God that you cannot mess with. You must take this God seriously. He is a God of overwhelming judgment. If he just breathes on you, you'd be obliterated. And yet, in our pride and in our folly, we say, I know, I'm not going to worry about God. I'm just going to do my own thing. God hasn't judged me yet. I'm able to do this sin. No one's found out about it. Haven't gotten in big trouble. Haven't experienced a lot of consequences yet. I'll be fine. Don't be so foolish. Do you know who you're dealing with? This is the God who sent the flood. This is the God who is grieved in his heart when he sees wickedness because he's that good. This is a God who hates sin and hates those who do it. He's been patient with you, but his patience will run out. Will you bank on that patience and risk the judgment, risk being thrown into hell, risk Jesus even telling you, Hey, you know what? You went to church. You called yourself a Christian. You did all these supposedly good works, but I never knew you. You didn't love me. You liked the acceptance. You liked the culture. You liked the community in the church, but you never, you never were mine. And brothers and sisters, this account points us to not trifle with God. Whether we know him or we don't know him, we must realize that our relationship with God is serious. Ultimately, resulting in our joy if we know him. But if we don't know him, it ought to result in our repentance. It ought to result in our humbling ourselves before God, beating our breasts as the tax collector in the New Testament saying, God, please be merciful to me. I am a sinner. I have loved myself in my own way, and I have not wanted to do what you wanted me to do. I've not loved you. I've loved all the things in the world above you. I deserve your judgment, but please pardon me. Make Jesus my Savior. Let him be my substitute. May his work on the cross apply to me so that I might be saved. One other question, and then if we have a little bit of time. Eh, I don't know if I have more time. If you have other questions about what we're talking about today, definitely email me or just thoughts you had on the lesson, and I'll respond to those as best I can. One other question, though. We see Noah as an example of faith and obedience in the face of many unknowns. But what about you? What unknowns are you facing in your life, and 
How can you walk in obedience to God through those unknowns? And what can you expect from God as you do that? Now, this idea is tied up in the account as well. I don't know your specific situations. I don't know how you are being tested in faith, what trials you're undergoing, what sins you are struggling with and fighting to overcome. But the account of Noah and the flood should sober us and encourage us. Noah spent, as far as the text seems to indicate, he spent 120 years building an ark for a flood that no one else said was coming. They didn't believe him. Noah preached and he pleaded with these same people. And they didn't. They didn't accept. Our own faithfulness will involve that kind of testing and that kind of waiting. Waiting for God's promises to come to pass as we fight against the pressure of the world and the pressure of the flesh and of the pressure of the evil one. But one of the things we see in this account is that God keeps his promises, both to judge, but also to save and vindicate. This is a theme we're going to see again and again in the scriptures. Old Testament and New Testament. God is faithful and he will vindicate your faith. So whatever it is that you have to walk with before the Lord this morning, say, God, this is hard. God, I feel the pressure. I don't know, God, if, if following you is, is the right way. If I can, if I'll make it, if I choose to be obedient. The text tells us God will vindicate you. You will see his vindication, either on earth, as he so often graciously does, or when you see him. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful slave. You endured. You waited. You waited on me in righteousness. Now, you will see that I saw and I will reward. So be encouraged. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, bring it before the Lord. Say, God, I am weak, but Lord, I will believe you. Help me, God. Help me, God, as I, as I trust you in this. Preserve me. Provide. Because I will wait for your vindication. That's all for this week. We're out of time. Next week, we're, we're going to return to the flood, and we'll deal more with an issue that we have raised today, which is this historical flood. Was it global, or could it have been a local devastation? I mean, for sure, everything died, but maybe that was just in a small area. We'll see what the Bible has to say regarding whether the flood was really global or not, whether it's clear on that issue next time. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you that you are not against us. For those in you, you are not against us anymore. You're not our enemy, but you're our friend. And much more than that, God, you are our savior. You are our life, our light, our love. But we are weak. We are so lacking in faith. Oh, thank you for the example of Noah and the many other examples of faith in the scripture. But it's not about them, God. It's about you. There isn't power in faith itself, but there is power in you as the object of faith. God, I pray that you would help those who are listening today. Lord, even as I sought to exhort and admonish them, and even myself, God, I know I need this admonishment. Lord, help us not trifle with you, but help us to believe you. Help us to be obedient to you in our thoughts, words, and deeds, God, manifest that we hold to your promises. That nothing in this world is worth holding on to except you. To you, God, we will cling. Everything else will fade, but you will remain and your promises will prove true. Lord, encourage your people today. Give them the greater love and vision of you as they continue to 
fellowship and worship together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everyone, thank you. I'll see you next week.